This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. So I won't use your name, but I will give you just a quick opportunity to introduce yourself. Yeah, um, I am a survivor, obviously, um, from the Midwest. We're currently in the middle of a blizzard, which is exciting. Oh boy. Um, I do um, advocacy and prevention work at a college right now, um, which I kind of talk about a little bit in my story, but really... Um, my story is what got me into that field. Mm. So it's really exciting to be able to share my story. Um, I think, I think there's a stigma around survivors doing the work. Yes. So, okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one that thinks that. And so I, it's for me, like, this is a great outlet to be able to share my story while also not having to share it as part of my work necessarily, but right. To keep it a little bit more separate. Yeah, but still being able to talk about it because obviously the people I'm working with, it's about them. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's very fitting actually with the We Are Her mission in general. Um, We're kind of an organization of survivors by survivors for survivors. And so I think that there is definitely places for what I call uh, a survivor expert. Mm. Um, And I think there's, there's a lot of value in that. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll just kind of have you start sharing wherever it is that you feel the most comfortable. Yeah. Um, I tried to make a timeline because I feel like mine is a little scattered and back and forth. Um, I was raped when I was 21 uh, by my boyfriend at the time. We'd been together for four or five years and kind of the typical like told me he loved me. We were going to get married. We had our future planned. And um, it happened one night over the summer before my senior year of college. And I'd stayed over. I'd gone to bed early. I was supposed to work like a super early shift the next day. And I woke up to him having sex with me. And I remember like it happened and I fell back asleep. And then I woke up in the morning and kind of got ready and like left for work and I was like that was weird like that Mm -hmm. something just like didn't sit right with Mm me um and I just like couldn't place it um and I I think like I just blocked it from my mind right like I was definitely in denial and definitely in the mindset that somebody that you're dating somebody that you're in love with they can't sexually assault you like that was something that I was like this is what you're telling yourself. This is what you're going to believe. And and I think it's a really common narrative. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of people talk about sexual assault within the context of an intimate relationship. So I don't think you're alone at all about kind of b- 
believing that narrative. I think it's a really common narrative. And so then when things like sexual assault do happen within the context of that intimate relationship, it's super confusing. It is. It really is. Because you're like, how can this happen? And you question, like, did it actually happen? Am I remembering this the right way? And so I really just like, happened in the summer, I put it out of my mind and moved on. And a couple months later, we broke up kind of just realizing for, for me, like finally realizing we were on very different paths and wanted different things and whatnot. Um, and then like a month or so after we broke up, I was at this conference and the speaker there started talking about garages and how we like put things in our garage that we just don't want to deal with. You just like mm-hmm. shove everything in the back corner and, or like up in like the attic space or whatever. And you just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And something about that analogy just like totally resonated mm-hmm. with me. And like sitting in this huge like conference arena with thousands of other people was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it you're at all. And I was like, uh, so your mind has a garage of its own and that right. summer was a box that's yep. very far back there and it just on its own moved to the front and I sat with that for a while and was like, yeah, I think that really happened. Like I, I think that happened and I went back to school. I was having dinner with my best friend in our cafeteria um, because why not talk about important, intimate things in public school? <laughs> right, yeah. And I started talking to her, and I was like, so, you know, I was just at this conference, and they had this metaphor, and so I think something happened with my ex, and she was like, okay, like, knowing that I was, like, struggling with this breakup and whatnot, she was kind of like, what do you mean? And I start, like, describing everything to her, and I was like, I think that's sexual assault. And at this point, we're both crying in the cafeteria over burgers and fries and like, you know, typical space. And it was really like, she was the first person I'd ever disclosed to and had really like the most positive response that so good. you can have, which is like, yeah. doesn't happen very often. No, yeah. Um, but like for me, I couldn't label it for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So it was like a baby step for me to be like, so do you think that was wrong? Like asking her, like, do you think that's like, was it sex? Was it consensual? Like, was it not? And I, I called local hotline advocates and I was Mm -hmm. like, so I want to tell you what happened. And I want someone to tell me like concretely, (laughs) what's the sexual assault? Like looking for somebody to confirm to confirm it because I, I couldn't. Um, and it was like really small steps for me to be like, okay, yep. That was sexual assault. And that was like the first baby step. And then for me, it's like, now I can say, no, like that was rape. Like right. I can call it that. And I think we are very, um, we're, we are shy of that word, you know, and, and sexual assault is, is, 
isn't is synonymous with rape, but also sexual assault. A lot of different types of sexual assault can happen on a spectrum, and rape is a very specific type of sexual assault, and we tend to conflate the two. But I think there's power in in naming it for exactly what it is. But that's a very scary and intense label. It makes people uncomfortable. It's hard to put that label on yourself. I think you can you can, as the survivor can feel very uncomfortable. It's a and once you label something, um, it kind of forces you to have to deal with it. And so it's like, well, are you ready to deal with it? You know, yes. what is that process going to look like from that moment on? It's a lot. And it kind of took a little while for me to like accept that. Um, and I was in a position on my campus where I was pretty involved. I was pretty connected. I knew more resources. I knew a lot more about Title IX than probably your average college student. Um, I was connected and on a first name basis with our Title IX coordinator, just on the basis of like due to the nature of my job on campus. Mm-hmm. And I still like struggled to accept that like it happened. And to like, I had people I could go to and I like started talking to more people on campus and my ex wasn't on campus. So I didn't go through like a Title IX process or anything. Sure. Um, and like investigation wise, because there wasn't much that they could do. Um, but I was like, you're struggling and you like, know where to go and you know who to like have help you um and that was like kind of just got me thinking about getting into sexual violence prevention and advocacy um I spent the last few months of my college experience in counseling with a great counselor and I, you know, graduated, thought I was fine. I was like, you did therapy for three, four months. We're past it now. It's over. Moving on. We're just going to put that back in the garage with a nice bow on it. It's all settled. (laughs) You tackled it. Great. A plus. (laughs) Um, And then I went home for the summer and I spent my whole summer in the same town as my ex with mutual friends Um, and a few unavoidable encounters with him and um and this was with mutual friends who I did not feel safe telling them at all what happened right so you kind of had to pretend that everything was fine and it didn't happen and was that like pretty anxiety provoking knowing that you could kind of run into him at any time it was awful yeah like I was constantly looking over my shoulder I was terrified of seeing his vehicle in town Mm. um he knew where I worked and I was like, please don't let him show up at work. Like hadn't really talked to a lot of people at work to tell them what happened, but in my mind was making like my own safety plan of like, if he comes in, who is working today that you can safely tell so that you can run and hide somewhere until, and, and it wasn't just like him. It was like anybody that he knew and like any family friends or siblings, like, it was just, I just was panicking all the time. And you can't escape it in that environment. No. And I like stopped going out. I wouldn't go downtown with any of my friends. I like, just, just like, I'm going to spend my summer at home in my house, driving to work and coming back. Like that was, that was my summer. 
And that was slightly my realization of like, okay, maybe your three months of therapy wasn't you dealing with it enough. <laughs> like right. maybe there's some more work to be done. It's still clearly causing you a lot of distress yeah, and justifiably and rightly so. Um, but that's a really hard way to live. You know, mm-hmm. that's hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. It was, I was having like nightmares and trouble sleeping and just like all of these things that like, now that I do the work, I'm like trauma response. Like, yes, yep. absolutely valid. But for me, like, I was like, what is going on? Like, why is my body acting like this? Um, and then on top of that, that summer, I also disclosed to my parents mm. um, because they knew that I had these like inevitable encounters and they were like, it was just an ex-boyfriend. Like you can get over it. You can deal with it. And I was like, so much more than just an ex. Right. Like there's so. They didn't understand the depth and gravity to which this person had harmed you. And so then, you know, home, which should be kind of a safe, supportive place, wasn't because they didn't know and they couldn't support you in that way. And I was just like really sick of hearing like, hmm. it's okay. Like put on your big girl pants and deal with it. Like, mm-hmm. and God, disclosing to my parents was rough. Um, my dad wanted to bury him in the backyard. Yeah. Which was, you know, problematic for a few reasons. Right. Uh, but for me, I was like, why would you pick the backyard? I don't want him. <laughs> and also just adding a, another level of escalation, you know, it's yes. like, ah, you're freaking out. And then your dad's freaking out. And then everyone's yes. freaking out. And it's right. like not helpful like, or calming. No, no. Like that's not reassuring that now you want to. Now you have to worry about your dad murdering someone and going to jail right, on top right. of everything else. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just add that to my stress bucket. Right. Um, and my mom asked all the, all the wrong questions. Hmm. All the, why did you stay with him after? Why did you have sex with him? Why didn't you break up with him right away? Are you sure you didn't like say something that made him think he could have sex with hmm. you that night? And I remember like I was using my therapy tools. I was yeah. trying. I was like, no mom, like this, no, like trying to explain it. And it just like, wasn't clicking. And I just kind of like gave up trying to explain it, you know, like, but what an invalidating experience, you know, where you're really trying to be heard and seen and felt by someone so important to you. And they just are telling you, I mean, it's, it's almost like, gaslighting sort of you're like "Ah, are you sure and then you start doubting yourself all over again and it's just that same cycle over and over so she's asking me all these questions and I'm like I don't have answers for you like Mm -hmm. and I was trying to say like this isn't what I need from you right now like trying to articulate my needs and it just like wasn't clicking that I was just like okay like we're just gonna shut down and not talk about it anymore um And so my mom's asking me all these questions, which we know I've already asked myself over and over, right? Like dealing with guilt and shame. And these are things that I talked about in therapy. And um, on top of that, had already like started, the more I like reflected on our relationship was acknowledging that there was a lot of manipulation and emotional abuse and it wasn't just the sexual abuse and so for me like I can look back now and I can say well every argument was always your fault Mm -hmm. and he was never to blame so like 
of course, in that moment when he raped you, like, you're not going to think, yes, this was his fault, right? Like, you know that anytime you try to confront something with him, it gets turned back on to you. I mean, he trained you to believe everything was your fault anyway. So in that situation, trying to, like, confront him about it would have gotten you nowhere. Yeah. And now I, like, know more about trauma and freeze responses and how that messes with our brain and our memory formation. And I'm like, it all makes sense to me. But like in that moment and trying to have that conversation with my parents, just like added to the stress of it all added to my like withdrawing from everybody. Right. And And I I think you're bringing up a really important point here too, about um, that. It wasn't just about that one incident of sexual assault. Um, and most perpetrators of that type of violence don't just – there's a pattern leading up to it, but sometimes that pattern is really uh, subversive and it's hard to see. And mm-hmm. so people generally don't just randomly commit sexual assault. There's there's generally like a history with power and control mm-hmm. issues before that. But if you weren't – if you didn't know how to see them, if, if you couldn't see them, then of course that – experience of sexual assault felt like it probably came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It, it absolutely did. Um, so I decided my solution was to move across the country. That's how I was going to deal with things. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, this is gonna, this is gonna fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I moved across the country. I was going to grad school and I was like, you're going to be great. Like this is going to be fine. You're in a big city. He won't be there. You've got nothing to worry about. You'll be safe. My garage is tidy. Yep. Boxes are in a row. Look at our garage. <laughs> yeah. Pristine garage. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it was. Or what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did not happen at all. Um, and it like felt like it hit me out of nowhere because I was so convinced that like you're thousands of miles away. Like he would never be here. Like, you should feel safe. And I was still, like, in a new place on the other side of the country, panicking and always looking over my shoulder. Any sight of a vehicle that looked like his was, like, spiraling on the sidewalk, like, walking to class. Like, you can't focus. Like, intense panic attacks. I started having nightmares. So on top of being a full-time grad student, I was up from, like, one to five every morning, Mm -hmm. not sleeping. And having all of this like overwhelming anxiety. And then I was in therapy twice a week, which felt like a lot to me. And again, like lucked out with an amazing therapist. And it's still work though. Therapy isn't just like all flowers and roses and rainbows. Like you walk in there and you're processing some shit. So it's not, you know, you can leave therapy sometimes feeling so exhausted. It's important work. And it, I mean, some people really, you know, for them, they need to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. No. And, and, and it's like, so I'm taking a full course load and you're also like meeting with a therapist or a group like twice a week to process things. And like, I'm a very emotional person. So I'm usually leaving or crying during each session and like leaving super like distraught and exhausted from my emotions. And it was just like, I just was convinced that things were going to be so fine. And grad school was like, not. And trauma is something that you carry with you, regardless of where you are in proximity to that other abuser. It's, Mm -hmm. um, it's something that, you know, 
you carry like a backpack. <laughs> it's it's yes. with you all the time. And you can yes. either do something with it and kind of work on that healing piece or it's just going to keep pounding you and coming up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And again, one weekend, things just kind of like snapped and I, in the library, studying with a friend, told another friend in grad school, like I, I tend to pick public places to like say, hey, let me tell you my serious shit that I'm dealing with. Um, and again, had another friend with a great response and a great like acceptance and you know validating my emotions. And it was really nice to finally have someone to say like who knew. Okay, Tuesdays are gonna be really hard because she's got therapy. Oh, so like, yeah. I'll check in. Or, you know, someone to have who, an ally like inside your grad school yeah. program with you who knew what you were going through. And like, she didn't have that experience, but she was able to be there and like just let me feel all the feels and eat all the ice cream I wanted to and you know um so that was just like such a blessing and she was super supportive as I started to like really care about sexual violence prevention and so I started taking more classes where I was like on top of being in therapy twice a week and dealing with your own shit, let's start studying the shit too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which can be kind of empowering. Yeah. To, to If you can wrap your mind around it as, as like a conceptual issue mm-hmm. and kind of educate and be more aware. Yeah. Um, so I was in classes. I was doing like extracurricular events on our campus. Um, I did an internship that had to do with prevention work and, uh, that really helped me like slowly piece together all of these ways that my rape could have been prevented, mm. which was like sort of empowering, but also like super frustrating at the same time to be able to say, okay, well, had your family been more open about relationships and sex and had you not grown up in a conservative family where it was shamed to talk about anything, maybe you could have asked some questions mm-hmm. and like things would have made more sense early on that like this was manipulative behavior. This isn't like respectful intimacy. Um, I think especially during the time that I was in college, the idea that sexual assault only happens with a stranger mm-hmm. was still very, very prominent. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is still prominent and we know that it happens But I th- today, but we, I think, are doing better and starting to acknowledge more that more likely than not, the survivor knows the perpetrator. Right. We're moving beyond the narrative of like, mm-hmm. you have to like put your keys in between your fingers and check the backseat of your car and don't wear a ponytail. <laughs> and those were like all things that yeah. like were what I was told. And, right. and that's I- what's going to solve this problem of sexual assault. Yeah. As if you just put pepper spray on your keychain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is now like not allowed at college campuses, but that's, that actually makes, that seems like a safety concern. Yeah. <laughs> I can get behind that. We don't pe- yeah. need people accidentally pepper spraying each other in the eyes. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think there's no one to, we certainly weren't talking about the need for consent within relationships. That was not a thing. Um, we weren't talking about abuse being anything other than physical abuse. So for me, I was like, well, he never hit me. So like, how could you be in an abusive relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that there are so many other kinds of abuse. And so for me, like I start thinking about all these things and I'm like, it's kind of the what ifs. 
the like mm-hmm. the past tense of like if this would have happened if this would have been the case then maybe this wouldn't have happened like maybe I would have recognized red flags and maybe we wouldn't have dated for so long and I think part of that is like recognizing the need and the change um in society like the work that we need to do um I think also some of that was still like processing how to not blame yourself, right? Um, and so for me, like I was, I certainly had those really close to me who didn't believe anything that I said and, you know, sided with him, which was super, like just very detrimental to relationships and to my own like well being. Um, but I was also very fortunate to have a really good close group of friends who were there and really supported me like more than I ever could have imagined. And so for me, that was something that like just really was very impactful on my experience and my healing journey and really got me thinking about, again, the students who weren't connected on campus and those who didn't have someone that they could tell or didn't know who they could tell. Didn't have uh, a safe, supportive friend who yeah. would accept them and believe them and validate them. Exactly. And, like, that really frustrated me. And I would think about, like, who's doing this education and what's this education that we're doing? Because I really don't think this abstinence-only stuff is cutting it. Right. And like, what are we teaching kids? And like, are we answering their questions? Like, are we giving them people they can talk to? Um, And that for me was like, I don't know if we are. Like, I don't know that we're helping our students. I don't know that we're giving them outlets to process. I don't know that we're providing them safe spaces. And I kind of decided that I really wanted to get into violence prevention and advocacy because for me like I wanted to be at least one person in someone's corner yeah right and you can't change the past you can't go back in time Mm -hmm. and change the past but there is an opportunity to change the future for other people you know real time for survivors who are experiencing that crisis phase and hopefully to help decrease the number of people experiencing these types of violence in the first place Mm -hmm. and it's such needed work Yeah. And I think like, it's both rewarding and frustrating. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I I meet with people who, and it's almost like, I love what I do, but it's hard not to like, think about your own experience. Mm -hmm. So a big piece for me that has come up like, both on my own and also in my various therapy appointments that I didn't report. I didn't get any what some might call justice in that way. Like I didn't get You didn't to, look for legal help or legal no. justice, right? And like by the time I kind of brought it up in therapy, my therapist at the time was very honest and was very you could, like if that will make you feel better, if that's gonna help you, you could. But was also very honest about the likelihood of 
them doing anything was pretty slim. Yeah, it does. Uh, just because you report, it doesn't guarantee justice. And yeah. then um, it's a very taxing, emotionally, mentally, physically taxing experience for survivors. So you're processing and dealing with the trauma of of the of the abuse that you've experienced, and then also having to process the trauma of going through the justice system. And it is traumatic. It is super traumatic. And I think a lot of survivors weigh: is it worth it? You got to weigh the risks, uh, the pros and cons. And oftentimes it's stacked in the con column and it's like, well, this isn't going to help me move on. It's not, it's not going to help me feel healthier or, or, or better. So they choose not to. And it's, people don't understand kind of the logic or thought process behind why someone would choose not to report often. And I think that's so frustrating because even in like my work environment, you know, you have people that are like, well, why isn't this person going to come forward? Why aren't they going to report? Like, why wouldn't they do that? And I'm like, they've got X, Y, and Z. And like, they don't need to explain to you why they aren't going to. And like society isn't understanding this mm-hmm. thought process mm-hmm. that survivors have to go through when deciding like, is it worth it? Because our justice system isn't really set up to help us all that much mm-hmm. in this instance. Right. And if that goes to trial or, or any kind of hearing, whoever that person's defense is often attacks the the moral character of the survivor and to have your integrity just kind of raked across the coals, your dignity raked across the coals. Like that is, um, yeah, that it hurts and it takes a long time to get over something like that. And then still again, may or may not end up in your favor anyway. So is it, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you want to put right. yourself through that hell? And I have mad respect for people who do it. Don't get me wrong. I just think you're completely right that people don't understand why someone would not want to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my story. Yeah. So how um, how are things for you now? Can you talk a little bit more about like what healing looks for you looks like to you, kind of on a day to day basis? Or because I know it's ongoing. It's not something that you just like yeah. arrive at. <laughs> for sure. Um, I'm a person who really hates like change and transition, and so moving to new places, starting new jobs, and like that means having to find a new therapist. Mm-hmm. And um. I mean, I, I lucked out with two incredible therapists while I was in school. And so for me, it's like very scary to like start trying to find another one. Right. Um, And that's something that I've avoided doing because I am like, are they going to be as great as my other ones? And that's just like another person that you have to explain like all this like complicated back and forth, like trauma to, um, but it's also something that I've always enjoyed and like enjoyed is maybe not the right word. Yeah, but found helpful at least. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. It's helpful. And it's one of those things that I know is good for me and I know it is helpful for me. And so, and I especially think like long-term sustainability wise, like doing the work, like I know that that's something that I want to and need to pursue. Um, I box now as oh. like my- form of exercise and it's incredible what does boxing do for you do you think like what kind of catharsis do you experience with that I find it so empowering yeah um I think it's so ironic because with that that I got into this because with my second therapist when I was having nightmares we talked a lot about dream mastery um, are you familiar with that? Is that like, like lucid dreaming kind of where you can sort of control yeah, so it was, a bit? Mm-hmm. So I was having this like reoccurring 
consistent nightmare of like that involved my ex and like chasing me and assaulting me again and you know our, our dreams and our nightmares never fully like chronologically make sense sure. but it was same same theme same concept every time and it was reoccurring and so this idea of and I am not a licensed therapist but how my therapist explained it to me is that this dream mastery is like you imagining and like either writing down or saying out loud what the ending of that like nightmare would be mm-hmm. so for me I was like having this constant nightmare of my ex chasing me trying to sexually assault me again and and I remember sitting in therapy and I was like, I would just love to like kick his ass into a life sentence. Like that was what I wanted. <laughs> like physically, like release my anger, like one swift round kick. And he was like locked away. For one karate chop to the, yes. to the groin or something. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and for me, like that totally worked like, I was like, just talking about it, like how can we get rid of those nightmares? So definitely something hmm encourage um can't you know do with people I work with because I'm not a therapist right. but uh, worked for me and I love it um and was so that was kind of a it felt really empowering in that nightmare right the idea of being able to do that yeah. kind of helped resolve yeah. like you got to write rewrite your own ending in that in that scenario yeah. and then you're kind of like living it out in your boxing class yeah it kind of like yeah. plays into that idea that you can protect yourself and it really does. Yeah. And, and it's not and like my boxing class isn't designed to be like self-defense. And right. I, like, I, I love that about it. Like, it's just about like, I mean, it's a high intensity workout. So it's very much like get your heart rate elevated. You feel really great. But I also leave feeling super strong mm-hmm. and super empowered and very badass. And I love it because I can punch something to like the beat of like whatever curse words I'm feeling that day nice. <laughs> about anything. Um, and dropping so that, a lot of F-bombs. F bombs. Yes. Yeah. So that's been like such a healing form of exercise, but also I, I tell our gym like instructor that I'm like it's exercise, but for now it kind of doubles as therapy for me a little bit. Like, yeah. <laughs> good um so that's been super healthy for me um I think I'm not a big journaler that's not like a healing method for me that's worked um I still have some escape tendencies and so I did not move back home I don't particularly love to be at home just knowing that like he's still around um, so that is like, I still have those like avoidance tendencies when I'm home for the holidays and things like that. Um, and I don't really have like an answer as to how those like go away, you know, like I, again, things to work on in therapy. Right. <laughs> but- and maybe they don't. And it's, and maybe it's less about like things existing or not existing, but just the choices that you can have and how you choose to react to them or manage them. Um, I think you're bringing up a really important point too. like therapy is amazing. Um, but it isn't the 
only option for healing. It's it's one piece of a puzzle. And I know that for some people at any given time, therapy might not be exactly what they need in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, something like boxing, like we, you know, you, you can heal however you need to heal. And I think people need to trust themselves a little bit around mm-hmm. uh, deciding for them what feels cathartic, what feels healing. Um, and, and nobody can tell you how to heal. So if boxing is what's doing it for you or going on a nature walk or journaling or not journaling or whatever that looks like, like you have the wisdom within you to know, um, you know, how to heal and and to take steps in that direction. Yeah. And I think, especially like in the work that I do, that's something that I think is both important for me, but also important that I like share with other survivors is that like healing is not a one size fits all. It's not like one person's healing options aren't the same as somebody else's and they're not going to work or they're not going to be right. your go-to method. And I think um, those of us doing the work need to be committed to like sharing that with other yes. survivors so that they don't feel like, oh, I've got to go to therapy. Like I joke sometimes like that with my friends, but also we know that deep down I like it and it's helpful for me. Like that's an okay method, but like if someone really doesn't want to go to therapy, right? There are other options. Other options. I also Um, wanted to bring up too. Um, before we started recording the episode, you mentioned that you had um, an art show around your story. If you want to talk a little more about that, yeah. So we did. Um, in our community, had a local artist who volunteers to do. Um artwork, um, taking survivor stories. And so for me, um, this was like the first time that I really shared my story in a public way. Um, again, anonymous, didn't have to put my name attached to it. Um, but was able to like write out my story and which was like very difficult, but also very healing. Um, and then, we have an artist who takes and does artwork out of that and, you know, does a lot of like neutrals with teal and purple colors and really ties in those like themes that um, connect with sexual assault awareness month and domestic violence awareness month. Um, and then those are on display in the community for a while. Wow. Where did yours get displayed? It was on our local campus in oh, an nice. art gallery. I yeah. love that. Um, so it was just a super exciting, like for me, something to be able to like finally share, um, and, you know, not like easy to share your story with a stranger, Mm -hmm. um, but getting to meet the artists, like after the exhibit was up and like seeing the artwork, it was just like really powerful to see interesting to see how somebody else interprets you. interpret it yeah but it's a manifestation of your mm-hmm. story in a very emotional um yeah. artistic like in you know tangible way which mm-hmm. is pretty cool mm-hmm. um so that was and that's something that goes along every we, we've done it for I think this community that I'm in has done it for a few years now so um really great outlet for survivors um 
I'm like and taking am, notes because I want to maybe steal that yeah. for something that we are yeah. can do and make that is so cool. Um, I love it. I am not an artsy person at all. So like for me, that was like, I can do the writing part, but somebody else can't, like, I can't do that aspect. Um, but like they all turned out so beautiful and it's just like, it's just nice to see those testaments to people's stories. Mm, I love that. So yeah. we're, um, we're kind of wrapping up on time here, but I usually like to ask anyone who's on the podcast to, um, share any message that you would want a survivor to hear who might be listening. I think for me, um, my like true hope is that all survivors have someone who believes them, whether that's an advocate on the hotline that they've never met, um, or a best friend, um, a family member, a stranger, somebody. Um, I think for me, my hope is that survivors get believed and, I think part of that, like, we need to be sharing our stories. Um, And I think outlets like this podcast are incredible because it allows us to share our stories in ways that really value our safety and allow us to remain anonymous or not. Um, And I think that that's incredible. Um, And I think just being comfortable, being more comfortable sharing our experiences when we're ready um, and, and knowing that it's okay to share your story and it's okay not to, um, you know, like my family and I don't acknowledge anything <laughs> about any of it. And it's one of those where I'm like, that's just going to have to be something you kind of like accept at this point, but how can I find other outlets that allow me to share my story and that allow me to feel empowered in my own story? Mm. I love that. And I feel super honored to hear your story and to receive your story. Um, And we're just so thankful that you agreed to be on the podcast. And um, yeah, with that, I think we'll kind of wrap up. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.